Hello and welcome to Kane and Rin's Sound of Play 116. Wednesday and Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 116 is our friend from the community, a uh, previous correspondent in the past. You know him as Catatonic Nally. Uh, hi, yes. Hello, Ryan. Hi. Uh, I've always been curious. What does that name mean? What What is the Nally part? I understand the catatonic as a word, but uh, where does that all fit together? Oh, God, uh, this is going to make me sound really stupid. <laughs> um, Perfect. Well, great way to start off the show. Then. Yeah, fantastic. It's amazing. <laughs> I've done like five of these before and it's not come up yet. Hmm. Um, okay, the Nali or Nali, I'm not sure which way it's pronounced. Uh, they <laughs> well, are... It's your name, so you get to choose, right? <laughs> I guess. Like it's. I mean, technically it's an in-game uh, thing, but mm. I'm not sure if it's ever actually been... I'm, it must have come up somewhere. Um, so the Nali are the race of like um peaceful indigenous aliens that live on the planet that your prison ship crashes into in the original single player unreal game from about 20 years ago Mm, okay and they've been featured in all the unreal tournament games they're a bit like an indian um you know like asian indian Mm -hmm. uh, well basically they kind of look a bit like dalsim except they've got forearms so they're sort mm, of okay. Indian-y with then the, the Indian god with all the, the various arms. Is Vishnu has a lot of arms. Yeah, I believe so. 
The one from the Indiana Jones movie, the bad one, has a lot of arms. <laughs> I should stop before this starts to get culturally insensitive. But. <laughs> okay, so it's a, a good old Unreal reference then. That is correct. Fans of Kane and Rinson Sound of Play will be familiar with your uh, screen name coming up every once in a while in our correspondences and uh, just over our uh, Twitter sphere. So... Uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. You've been on before, though. Uh, yeah, I think this is about my sixth or seventh time. I count oh, yeah. at least. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, at least at least six. If I'm not forgetting something else, and uh, second sound of play. Cool. Well, we introduced this sound of play with a uh, a real banger of a track. I love this one. It's one that feels like a bit of an obvious pick, but uh, it hadn't been played up to this point, and I, I felt it was about time to fix that. This is called. Nostalgic Fortress from Super Mario Galaxy 2. That is, of course, a cover of the main theme, one of the themes from Super Mario 64. Mm. I, I see it kind of touted as being the main theme, but I always think of main themes as like what plays over the opening title screen or whatever. And I, I thought that this track was just what was used in, is it bob Battlefield? Uh, at least one of the levels. But yeah, it, it's definitely indicative of that that game. <laughs> That's certainly where I recognized it from because um, I've... Mm-hmm. To my discredit, I've not played either of the Super Mario Galaxy games. So I never mm. owned a Wii, but I pulled this up on YouTube earlier, and yeah, it's it's definitely the uh, Bob on Battlefield theme, but in a it's kind of a jazzy yeah, yeah. horn, maybe. There, there's a lot of uh, it's very dense <laughs> instrumentation on this one. There's a lot of different instruments playing, um, but yeah, it is primarily kind of brass led. Uh, you say jazzy, of course, it it does play into the jazziness of the piece with this new kind of live instrumentation that they brought to it but the original composition was also jazz but just played with that really weird synthy mario 64 sounds and uh and and so the uh, the jazziness didn't really come through until you hear it with this type of instrumentation but i love how lively it is how energetic this cover is and i don't know if this is considered a spoiler for mario galaxy 2 but this plays on a level that is a uh, throwback to a Mario 64 level. So it, it just kind of all hits you at once. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you already announced the name of the track is uh, Nostalgic Fortress. So yep. yeah, I think probably spoilers are all fair play. <laughs> Off the table now. <laughs> yeah, we cool. could have figured that one out. Yeah, Mario Galaxy 2 has been around for long enough. And uh, if you haven't mm. played it yet, which uh, you haven't, John, no. I would uh, highly recommend that if, if you have any love in your heart for the 3D platformer, because Mario Galaxy 2 is pretty much top of the pile for me. <laughs> Yeah, I do. One. I don't know. I've completely skipped by the Wii. I never owned one. I have a Wii mm. U and I have a GameCube and I have an N64, but I somehow managed to completely skip the Wii. Well, if you have a Wii U, you don't really need one. I don't know if the Wii U is backwards compatible. It is, yep. yep. You can put Wii discs in it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't actually realize that. <laughs> yeah, you can even put GameCube discs in it if you uh, do a little homebrew behind the scenes fiddling, but uh, you know that that's not officially supported. No, but Wii, no is uh, natively supported by the Wii U. So uh, definitely get on that. It's also available digitally on the Wii U if that's uh, easier to pick up a copy there. I didn't realize that either. Yeah, wonderful game. (laughs) It shows how much my Wii U gets used. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of in the the post-Switch days. That's my Wii U story as well, unfortunately. (laughs) Should I admit at this point, I don't have a Switch either. And I bought a Wii, well, I didn't buy a Wii U. I've Mm -hmm. stolen Tony Atkins' Wii U and not given it back to him. (laughs) Uh, but I got that 
primarily to play uh, Breath of the Wild on the Wii. <laughs> Actually, we're uh, shutting down recording because that's all that we needed is just hearing you admit that on tape. So, yeah. uh, uh, boys, <laughs> we have what we need. Move in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll report directly to the nearest police officer. Speaking of being carried back in the arms of a police officer... <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, let's move into the second track. It's, it's a rough transition, but I think it'll get us there. Uh, yeah, it sort of works. So I don't know what exactly needs to be said about Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. Uh, there was a Kane and Rinch show on it, what, 10 months ago? Yeah, well, a little while ago. It was back. the first one of the uh, the current series, if I remember rightly. And I mm. was slightly frustrated that I didn't get an invite to that show. And am I right in thinking you weren't on that one either? No, you see, I, uh, I, I've i been sitting this season out because of uh, my, my work obligations. Yes, of course, of course. And that, that went as far back as uh, the beginning of the year. Yep. Okay. So I know that you wanted to talk about the game, and I definitely wanted to talk about it. And I think <laughs> I spent so much time telling mm-hmm. Tony, because we're friends in real life and we work together, so I see him every single day. Mm-hmm. Lord help both of us and i think i played everybody's gone to the rapture probably about a year ago maybe a little bit more than a year ago and i spent six Mm -hmm. months absolutely talking his ear off telling him you need to play this you really have to play this and he eventually did and then he ended up going on to the show so i didn't get my invite (laughs) (laughs) you know something about me and tony is that uh we're a little bit like Batman and Bruce Wayne. We're never on the same podcast mm. together. <laughs> so the track is Carry Me Back to Her Arms, which I believe uh, if you've played the game, each of the five sort of main characters of each of the chapters in the game mm-hmm. uh, has a theme that plays and most of them play over their kind of ending to their storyline. And this this uh, piece here is absolutely talking about Frank, who is the farmer in the game and whose wife previously passed away and he didn't feel comfortable with um, with her illness and he was obviously unhappy about her passing. Mm. And the part of the storyline is that he was turned off by it. He couldn't be with her when she died and he just sort mm. of pissed off and went to the pub instead and I guess drank his grief away this song is what plays over his kind of it's I wouldn't say it's his redemption but the end of his storyline he talks about the fact that he's kind of got over that now and he wants to be with his wife despite the fact that she's dead and it's it's just I mean the whole game is so sad and it's so melancholy but it's so beautiful at the same time and the the idea of losing somebody and doing something that you then regret later I think it's something that we probably can all relate to at some point in our lives and it, every single one of the stories in that game especially as somebody who's british and who understands that sort of small village lifestyle that they talk about in the game and that is very much on display it all feels very relatable and very evocative and i think frank's story in particular is i guess it just spoke to me a little bit more yeah, than yeah. some of the other ones it was a little bit less of a reach i enjoyed the wendy's storyline but i couldn't relate personally to the idea of having a husband who came back from the war and was disturbed from that but i can more relate to a generalized idea of grief and being a bit crap about it and not having the guts to face it head on and then later on Mm. sort of finding your feet and regretting it but being strong going forwards Uh, the overall story of everybody's gone to the rapture is essentially kind of a sci-fi horror story in a way it kind of couches that really well in these 
individual personal narratives uh, instead of telling the the grand overall story. It kind of lets you experience a secondhand view of Ooh. the overall story through the eyes of of you know these five or six people. And uh, one of the things that it does uh, really well throughout the entire game is it, it kind of marries the aesthetic of this sci-fi horror story with religion, uh, with kind of traditional religion, especially the kind of Catholic or Lutheran or Church of England type of religious expression. But it doesn't do that really hacky thing that all horror stories with the religious element does to say like, ooh, isn't isn't religion actually really creepy when you look at it, which is, you know, it's a, that's a fine way to explore the story, but it's been done like a billion times before. But instead it just kind of uses the uh, religious elements as like an emotional grounding for the story that they're trying to tell kind of like a, mm. a, a parallel uh, to give us something tangible here on earth uh, that is mysterious and, you know, reverent for us to kind of make a mental association with the overall kind of existential sci-fi story that's going on. And so a lot of the soundtrack plays into the, uh, that kind of Catholic hymnal yeah. type of, uh, of structure. And this one is, uh, is certainly has that flavor to it as well. And so it's, a. Uh, um, does does that do anything for you? Do you have any kind of associations from your youth of hearing this type of music and having certain emotions brought up for you? Um, I think only to the same extent that probably most people had where, mm. you know, when I was very young, I remember going to Sunday school and I remember mm. going to church occasionally. And my parents were not really, I think, in any way religious, but they took the positive things from Christianity mm. of, well, yeah. there are there are good Good messages in here and it's it's not a bad way to live your life to try and be kind to people and to try and do yeah. right in certain ways and you know, I, like I say I don't think either of my parents are at all religious um, and I'm certainly not now but it was something that yeah it was it was around when I was young and it's it, there's good moral teachings and things in there but it's it's certainly a theme that um, you'll see going across through the three tracks that I've picked and the games I'm I'm quite big on the idea of kind of religion as shown to be uh, a negative. So I'd say that I'm a big fan of of horror. And I think that a lot of the best horror is things that prey on kind of the negative side of religion or the, you know, the sort of the opposite side of it. So the satanic stuff and um, things like uh, The Exorcist and Hellraiser. And I like Mm -hmm. that sort of the flip side of well, what happens if what's supposed to be the kind of the ultimate good gets flipped on its head a little bit. And I think that, uh, you know, horror is at its strongest when it's like a really deep exploration of what does mankind do when it's faced with a presence that it has no way of like justifying in its own mind, you know, the, the mm. Lovecraftian or even the, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like, what do I do with someone this evil and crazy and, and unreasonable? All of my rules that I've established throughout my life break down because there's no there's no framework anymore. And uh, religion's kind of the same way. It's like you, you, you're presented with this supposedly eternal force that is guiding 
you know, aspects of life and of the universe and of existence. And so it's like, you know, they're, they're definitely kind of writing along the same line there. And so there are interesting parallels and I'm sure we'll get into mm-hmm. more of that later, but I think that people are dying to hear a little bit of everybody's gone to the rapture. So let's listen to uh, Jessica Curry's wonderful score. This is Carry Me Back to Her Arms. So we're coming back with something a little bit more uh, upbeat and fun. This is a request from the forum coming from your friend Marcus. Your friend Marcus says, Mother 3 is a game whose music is not only brilliantly crafted, but so integral in the experience. Like Paper Mario, this turn-based engine allows for additional hits when timed appropriately. But in this game, it all has to do with timing it with the battle music playing. That being said, this song I'm submitting is not a battle theme, but one found a few places inside the game. The first I recognized being after your character goes mad at the misfortune revealed to him and strikes out in violence only to be locked up in the prison until he calms down. That's when this song comes in and features the theme that is frequently found in the rest of the soundtrack in different ways. But here that theme is played in a sound that I hear as a mimic of a theremin, the unsure and almost sloppy transition between notes so fitting to your character's unease in the scene, yet the beauty of the melody being there as a basis of everything good that remains in the world, keeping him going. It was at this moment in the game, I knew Earthbound wasn't a fluke, that I knew I would love this one just the same, and that the Mother series was something I was so lucky to have stumbled upon. This is My Wonderful Room, or In the Room, by Shogo Sakai. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. 
Yes, of course, this comes from the only released in Japan so far, but it's pretty easy to get your hands on it if you want to as a Western ROM. Mm -hmm. uh, Mother 3 for the Game Boy Advance back in 2006. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, my wonderful room, and it's, uh, it's a bit bouncy, it's a bit fun. The series has always had a little bit of that, certainly the weird side, but also like a light rock and roll influence as well, which I think goes back to like the Stand By Me type of influence that mm. I think played into the, the first couple of games and Americana in a way. Like it feels like a game made by Japanese people set in a version of America and, uh, and the kind of traditional rock and roll roots that go into it. Earthbound itself, uh, getting back into thinking about uh, kind of religion, like that is another game that plays into a lot of those religious themes of existentialism. Of uh, it has a lot of like existential philosophical stuff in there as well. There's a, a point at which the characters' consciousness are being transplanted into robots, and you have to kind of think about like, am I still the same Ness because I, you know, I, I lack the body or the physical presence of Ness? And the final boss is one of those more kind of existential questions rather than like a looming King K rule or Bowser or something, mm. a more tangible boss that is overcome in a, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, in an unexpectedly classically religious way. So yeah, it, it definitely has a lot of that. And if those are questions that you are interested in being explored in art, Earthbound certainly has a lot there, and presumably so does Mother 3, because um, I've not played this one myself, but it, it sounds like uh, like another interesting title from the uh, Earthbound team. So uh, let's listen to a bit of music. This is My Wonderful Room by Shogo Sakai from Mother 3. got a bit of an interesting theme going on the show we're back to uh to religious existential questioning the dark side of religion again <laughs> yep yep this is from the binding of isaac Afterbirth. why don't you introduce this next track okay so i mean i didn't know the the actual name of this track is fundamentum i think mm -hmm. fundamentum um i don't know know it as that i know it as the theme for the burning basement um and it, Part of the reason I put this on is completely self-indulgent. Like, I mean, I like this track a lot. To be honest, I just want to talk about The Binding of Isaac. And 
Ryan, are you a fan? I think you're a fan. I've played a lot of the original. I've played good, good. a little bit of uh, Afterbirth Plus on Switch. Um, I, I tend to enjoy my time, but I'm not one of the super fans. Okay. So if I start talking to you about the Lost Mega Satan runs, are you in on that or uh, do you know where I'm going? <laughs> I have a concept that those things exist, but I've, uh, <laughs> I'm not good enough to actually get there myself. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I know this track as it's the theme for the burning basement and the, uh, the setup of the binding of Isaac, it's 100% like a rogue, like randomized or procedurally generated areas and item drops and enemies and bosses. And yeah, you know, it's one of these sort of no two runs will ever be the same. And the, the burning basement is a variation of the, the first level that you start playing the game on. The theme song that plays behind it is it's super cool. It's starts off it's quite moody and it's dark and yeah i mean moody i think summed it up and then about halfway through the track you start to get electric guitars come in and it it gets really groovy and this song goes kind of from being sort of dark and moody and oppressive to then it gets this this sort of guitar riff that goes over the top and plays through the second part of it see so this track here is is uh, written by Ridiculon. Now, of course, that's not the Danny Baranowski that a lot of early Isaac players will remember. Uh, was this track introduced when they replaced Baranowski's soundtrack, or is this an addition uh, to a later version of the game by a new artist? Where where does this fall in that musical legacy? Oh Lord! Well, it would it would definitely be a an addition to a later version because, as far mm-hmm. as I'm aware. The, the level that this plays over the Burning Basement, I think, was added into the Afterbirth edition of the game, which is, is what, four or five years previous to the, the original Binding of Isaac and then a couple of years after the, the Rebirth expansion to it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure it's been added on. I mean, the, as far as I'm concerned, the, the game that I've played, the original themes are all still there behind the levels that they play on. For all intents and purposes, uh, Afterbirth is an add-on. And mm-hmm. yeah, the level that this plays over is an addition to the game. So I think it's added to the original soundtrack. Okay. How does this soundtrack strike you as opposed to the original soundtrack? I know a lot of people have uh, some affection for the Baranowski soundtrack, especially uh, in uh, Super Meat Boy. You hear about that replacement soundtrack not being uh, up to people's standards and no. a lot of people preferring the original but uh, with Isaac I think it kind of goes both ways a bit more. When they added on the Afterbirth stuff which I think I got maybe six months or so into playing it the track that we're talking about it really stands out in amongst the previous mm-hmm. soundtrack is not something that I'm particularly familiar with. I think it doesn't stand out that much. It's one of those ones where I tend to turn the volume down and, you know, listen to podcasts or something while I'm, or, you know, stick the TV on behind it while I'm playing. Nothing from the original soundtrack stands out to me anywhere near as much as, as this track. This is Fundamentum by Ridiculon from The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth.
for coming back with an interesting song, I think. Uh, I don't typically have strong associations with the Pokemon music, uh, although I've played pretty much all of the main series Pokemon games going back to the original Game Boy back in 1996. I don't think I played it back in 96. I think it was 98 when I played Pokemon Blue originally. But uh, yeah, I go kind of all the way back with this series. And uh, this particular track is one from that first series of games from Red, Blue, Green, and possibly Yellow. I don't remember if they uh, reorchestrated things for the Yellow version. Uh, But this particular version of the track, this is the battle theme that you would get when you come across a wild Pokemon, is performed by an actual orchestra. And for as much searching as I've done, I don't actually know where this recording came from. I just think it's a really nice version of the song. So you can think of it (laughs) in your own minds as just representing the original wild Pokemon battle theme, uh, because Essentially, it's the same composition. All the uh, credit still goes to Junichi Masuda. But uh, yeah, it's just a a little bit more lively and uh, I think beautifully orchestrated version to listen to. But yeah, as I was saying before, the music in Pokemon has never really stood out to me as something that I want to like sit down and listen to. But going back to some of those earlier tracks, there are a few that have really kind of like wormed their way into my heart. A lot of the town themes, especially the uh, really haunting and evocative Lavender Town theme I love. I played that on uh, Halloween special a couple years back. Those catchy tunes, the Pokemon Center theme, the bicycle theme, um, a lot of those root themes are just really nice. The opening theme, of course, like there's a lot of really strong compositions there, but I guess I just don't really think about it as uh, kind of like you were talking about with Binding of Isaac, just a game that I phase the music out of in my memories a little bit. It's, it goes on for so long. I mean, if you've you've sat down and played uh, the original Pokemon games mm-hmm. and you've completed them, you've probably spent, you know, a hundred hours yep. sat there and, <laughs> you know, that, that bicycle, the bicycle theme particularly, because you get the bike about third of the way through the game and then yeah. you just ride around <laughs> on that and that just cancels out all of the other background music so you just hear that over and over and over mm-hmm. um and yeah it just it just sort of blends into meaninglessness yeah, but yeah i think i i completely agree the the music that's in it is very very strong and you also mentioned the lavender town theme and i still I remember that very, very clearly, despite the fact that I've probably not played the game for the best part of 20 years and mm-hmm. not heard it. I could I could still you know, hum that theme tune and probably not miss a beat. But I will say for as much as the music of the series hasn't stuck with me in the same way that like the Mario music has or, or the Zelda music or something like that, the battle themes have always been like a, a huge standout uh, from game to game because they kind of play and uh, riff off of each other a little bit. Mm. And a lot of that comes down to the opening of the songs, uh, which I think they've carried through the entire series, the strongest, most noticeable in the first two or three generations. But that, uh, that very recognizable, like swirling of the music 
as the screen flashes and it mm. transitions into the battle screen that that uh that plays that indicates that a battle's starting you know you're just walking through the grass and that catches you by surprise yeah. and, you know it's time to kick some ass with one of the uh the various wipes that they used yeah. across the screen as well the spiral <laughs> wipe or like the uh, star wipe in the middle mm. and uh to the point where that sort of pavlovian response of when you go into a, a gym battle the music or you know with the gym leader it doesn't start playing the same music it plays a more kind of yeah. aggressive version of the theme and you're like oh man this the music's really speaking to me here it's really telling me that things are ramping up and then later on in the game you go and fight the elite four and the the music again it's like an even further <laughs> version of it and it's oh god this this is this is getting really serious here the battle music throughout the entire series is fun to kind of like compare against one another because of like I said, they they do play with the same conventions in a lot of ways. They just kind of remix things slightly. But it, it's fun because each of the battle themes, I think to give the composers credit, are really strong and really memorable and always kind of feel like oh yeah, this is the Pokemon battle theme. And then when you go back to the previous one, you are surprised as like, oh wow, this one's completely different and I totally remember this one too. Like you know, it it just feels like each one is like the de facto Pokemon battle theme. Kind of like in the same way that the uh, opening theme songs from the Smash Bros. series from Melee onwards. It's like they're all like such strong, memorable themes that when a new one comes out, I always think like, oh, it's no way they're going to be able to top the theme song from the last one. And then they do. And it's great. And it's stuck in my head for another like four years until the next one comes out. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just like when when they do these kind of like iterative sequels on songs, so to speak. And uh, yeah, they, they've they've been doing a very good work with these. But uh, let's take it back to the original. This is the Wild Pokemon Battle Theme by Junichi Masuda, a cover by I Don't Know Who, presumably some sort of an orchestra. I, I, I'm afraid I can't give credit there, but uh, yeah, just imagine this as being from a... Uh, a rezzed up version of Pokemon Red, Blue, Green, and Yellow. another request from the forum this comes from sean s thomas who says despite never being quite as good as the monkey island series simon the sorcerer was a great diversion and featured chris berry voicing the sarcastic and reticent wizard this theme does a good job in conveying the magical tone in the quest now simon the sorcerer is not one that i'd ever heard of before is this something that you're more familiar with uh, I, I can't say that i'm familiar with it i've heard of it 
I mean, I'm I'm on board with Chris Barry. I don't know if as as a non-British person, you know who Chris Barry is. Not familiar, no. Okay, so Chris Barry uh, is a sort of a British comedian and actor who's very famous for his roles in uh, TV shows like Red Dwarf mm. and uh, The British Empire. Speaking of uh, of British comedy, I just recently got back from a uh, two week trip over to Britain, and I, I stayed with the wonderful Darren Gargett of Cane and Rinse uh, for half of that. And uh, was flipping around on on his TV and came across like a marathon or a channel that only played Benny Hill. And so it was kind of affirming that's like, yeah, you know what? All of the British stereotypes are actually true. Uh, <laughs> you do all just watch Benny Hill all day long. <laughs> I don't know that that's entirely true. <laughs> I also found... And this one wasn't coming through on his uh, on his TV. I think that he didn't have that particular channel ordered, but there was something called Ketchup TV. Do you have any idea of what this could be? <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with that. Although I have not had a TV license for the last three years. so Yeah, that's kind of the way things are moving anyway. So <laughs> yeah. the funny thing about Ketchup TV is it, it gave us an error screen of like, you know, you do not have this channel covered in yeah. your package. But the yeah. error screen was red. And so I, I just thought it was funny. It's like, oh, yeah, Ketchup TV, red error screen. Perfect. <laughs> I, think, I feel like we're getting the Ketchup experience already without paying for it. I hope it's exactly what I assume it is. Just glamour shots of ketchup being poured on various things. Really, really slow motion ketchup kind of (laughs) pouring out of a bottle with careless whisper playing in the background. (laughs) You know what? We got onto talking about ketchup TV because we, neither of us can really contribute that much more to a discussion of Simon the Sorcerer. So let's just listen to the main theme from Simon the Sorcerer. This is composed by... Adam Gilmore. To speak a little bit about the song, this actually reminds me a lot of that comedy song that I don't think it's the the four chord song. It might be though, but I think it's something different of a, a comedy group who's doing a, a bit, one of those musical bits about like, hey, Paco Bell's canon is in every song if you listen for it. Uh, and so, yeah, this one definitely has its fair share of the Pachelbel canon influence. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, let's listen to Simon the Sorcerer. This is main theme by Adam Gilmore.
as hyped up before, we are taking a severe 180 into, oh, uh, again, kind of uh, the, the scary and spooky, getting ready for October. We are going directly into the abyss here. Mm, yep, yep. This is uh, two tracks from Silent Hill 2, is that correct? It is, it is, yes, and I will admit that I cheated on this, and I was I was a little bit disappointed that I only got to pick three tracks for this. Because I've got an Sorry. entire library of tracks that I could, uh, yeah, we could do 10 of these and I can just keep pulling out tracks and I had to go through it. Part of the reason that I chose the ones I did was because they were easy to find the information about and they sounded, <laughs> you know, they had like reasonable uh-huh. names and so it was like, oh, I really wanted to use like the music that plays when you're looking at the little figurines that you've earned in Resident Evil 5. Mm. But I don't know who the composer is, and it was really difficult to find any information mm. about what the track really was. So, okay, scratch that. Let's use this instead. But yeah, I did I did technically cheat here. I've chosen two tracks from Silent Hill 2. And, I mean, in, in complete fairness, you know, in complete defense of myself, uh, if you've got the Silent Hill 2 soundtrack, which, yeah, if you like Silent Hill 2, you should definitely have the soundtrack because mm. it's absolutely cracking. They, are, they play back-to-back on the soundtrack, and the last sort of four or five seconds of the previous track bleed through into the next one and it's such a perfect seamless transition between them that if it hadn't have been for the fact that i pulled the two mp3s off my computer and edited them together with uh audacity mm. you wouldn't know that there was any sort of break between them <laughs> if you just play them through your music playing software it's seamless as it is you can hear the kind of the crack between the two of them because i'm uh, I guess crap at audio editing and can get rid of it. Um, but yeah, so this is uh, Betrayal and Black Fairy, uh, both composed and presumably played by Akira Yamaoka because he kind of did everything with Silent Hill. He's an absolute genius when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. These are two kind of really dark, horrible, right at the back end of the game tracks. And I mean, I'm I'm going to go ahead and assume that we can talk about Silent Hill too. I think the yeah. uh, you know statute of limitations has probably passed on it. I mean, are you a fan? I've not played any of the Silent Hill games, but I did watch a playthrough of two, and so <laughs> I'm I'm okay. somewhat familiar with the overall beats of the story. But it's been a while, and I but I haven't actually sat down with it. So I mean, I would say I'm a huge fan of. Uh, Silent Hill 2 like it's one of the games I've you know I'm I'm slightly obsessed about kind of creating lists and yeah I, I like to sit down and say like what are my 20 favorite games I've ever played and what were the games from 2016 and 2017 that were my favorites and Silent Hill 2 is one that is consistently but again because I'm kind of rubbish at picking I've got three games that are kind of in a rotation for like what would be my favorite game ever. Mm, And they're all like totally different games. I've got Dark Souls and Ocarina of Time and Silent Hill 2. And they're all kind of like, well, I could order these one to three, but they're all such different experiences and they sort of speak to me in very different ways. And the the time that I played them all was totally different. You know, Mm -hmm. it was almost like sort of adolescence or sort of teenager and then slightly older and a bit more jaded. And then when I was an adult and yeah, they were all all things that completely uh, are special to me for different things. So this kind of just like a, these games are all tied for the best game I've ever played. And I don't care. The, The tracks in question here, they, in my mind, they so strongly um, typify what is great about the soundtracks to these games. I mean, to the point where I, I think Leon's spoken about this before. 
about two years ago, Yamaoka-san came to the UK and did mm-hmm. a small tour of about, I think it was originally supposed to be about six dates around the UK and ended up being extended by a couple. And I went to one of the ones in London, and I know Leon went to one of the ones in Brighton, which I think the one in Brighton that he went to was added as like a mm. kind of special request because all the other ones sold out so quickly. And it was so fucking good. It was mm. so, so amazingly good. It's the only time I think I've ever been to see a composer playing rather than, yeah, I've, I've been to a huge number of, of sort of gigs and live bands and things from little gigs in pubs from my friends when we were all 14 and people were in punk bands and stuff all the way up to sort of huge arena tours. I think it's the only time I've ever been to see live music from a game played like this as much as I have enjoyed going to see something like, you know, the Final Fantasy uh, concerts that have been going on or the, the Zelda concerts mm, that have been yeah. played. I think this is the only experience I've had. And it was so strongly Silent Mm. Hill. The venue that we Mm. went to was this little place in the middle of nowhere, as far as I was (laughs) concerned, in London, in like an old sort of industrial area underneath some train archers uh, in a venue that looked like it used to be either an underground car park or like a really kind of dodgy nightclub, like Mm. sort of illegal rave area. It was, it was basically just went down this big ramp. Everything was all concrete. There were concrete pillars everywhere. It was so much like what you'd expect if you went to see something that was supposed to be Silent Hill. Yeah. And the day itself, I remember I walked out of my flat about two, three o'clock in the afternoon and it was just fog. It was like walking out into the, the kind of the misty, foggy Silent Hill world and everything was quiet and you couldn't see anything. And I went into London I walked up whatever the street was and I remember walking down the street, you could see about probably 50 yards ahead of you and there were just buildings were appearing kind of out of the fog, Mm. like these huge sort of (laughs) Cthulhu monsters and everything about it was so perfect. And yeah, I so hope that when Leon went to it three or four days later, Mm. he had as an evocative experience. I mean, I'm, I'm looking, I've got a poster framed on my wall next to my computer. I'm looking at this now. So the venue that he went to in Brighton apparently was called the Haunt, and I hope that that's I hope that that's um, you know as as fitting a name as yeah, it should be. Yeah. Now, of course, PlayStation Three players will know that there's no fog in Silent Hill. What are you talking about? <laughs> I spent a lot of time playing this on the uh, the HD collection on the Xbox oh, yeah? 360. Yeah, it, it had its fair share of fog. It had some other amazing <laughs> glitches that played into the game really nicely. Oh, that's cool. I think it might have been in the original versions as well, but there was definitely a glitch where after you've played through it once mm-hmm. and you've piggybacked your save file off itself over and over and over as you continue like a next playthrough and after your first playthrough it then the second one will have like extra items and things in the game mm-hmm. and you can get a different ending and there's various bits and pieces that happen in consecutive playthroughs depending on how you performed previously and one of the items that you get in the second playthrough going forwards is a chainsaw and it's got a a kind of a very typical kind of chainsaw noise when you use it. But I found a huge amount of the time when you actually killed something with it, the noise sort of glitched out and reverberated like crazy. And mm. although it was definitely something that was going wrong in the game, it felt so right to have kind of the sound doing this jarring, you know, like a CD getting stuck. Yeah, noise. yeah. Yeah, there's a certain, uh, I think horror games especially, 
uh, benefit from a lot of the glitches. If you think of uh, animation glitches or mm. even logic glitches can kind of put you in that space of unfamiliarity, like the world around you is broken. Mm. And uh, a lot of developers go to great lengths to try to induce artificial glitches in a way, in the same way that modern horror filmmakers often try to make their films look like they were shot on old cameras or, or filmed on VHS or something. And uh, yeah, it, it mm. adds something to that experience. But uh, yeah, so it's it's cool when that happens organically. I mean, am I right in thinking there was an interview done not that long ago on Kane and Rince with Tom Hewlett? Yeah. He was in charge of organizing, amongst other things, the Silent Hill HD collection. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he sort of publicly apologized and explained why a lot of the things were that were wrong were wrong with it and you know he did bug testing and submitted the bug testing report and then nobody bothered to do it so when he played the game he was like hold on this plays like the list of bugs that i wrote for it and it was all completely (laughs) understandable and i know that unfortunately a lot of people have been angry about the silent hill hd collection and there's certainly that section of video gaming that i feel people are very entitled about things and yeah people are very Okay, I mean, I understand you're sort of passionate about something. You want to see it done correctly and you want to see things done in the way that you would like them to be and treated Mm -hmm. with the maybe the respect and things that they deserve. But unfortunately, that's just not always how things work. I mean, people do make mistakes with things. People are flawed. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, okay, fine, something's gone wrong. This isn't the absolutely perfect tip top recreation of the games that you want. But at the end of the day, I very much enjoyed the fact that the Silent Hill HD collection existed because it gave mm, me an yeah. opportunity to go and play it again. Yeah. You know, I could, <laughs> I could have gone back on the PS2 and I could have pulled out a copy of Silent Hill 2, but you know, no matter how you look at it. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe they did make some mistakes. Maybe they did screw it up. But it's still something that's there that's playable on, I guess, last generation hardware now. Unfortunately, it's I, I don't know actually PS the way the PS3 games on the PS4 digitally go. But I know that the Xbox 360 version isn't playable on the Xbox mm. One, which is unfortunate. It's still a probably a better option than you've previously got to playing it. And you know, at the end of the day, these guys did put work into it and you know, is clearly still something that's been made by people who, you know, who had respect and reverence for the originals. You've got something here. Somebody somebody put their heart and soul into this, even mm-hmm. if it didn't work exactly as they wanted it to. So, you know, just, just enjoy what you've got because otherwise <laughs> you'd have nothing. That's true. Yeah. And these two tracks that I've picked here, like I say, they go back to back on the soundtrack. They're not exactly back to back in the game, but they play into each other so well. And I love the the sort of industrial clunking sounds in the track betrayal, which is, it's, it's actually a boss fight theme. It's the, uh, the theme from when you, you have your final confrontation against, uh, it's, it's two pyramid heads at that point, <laughs> but it's, it's this sort of horrible, very, very sort of melancholy, depressing, uh, background music with these clunks over the top, like somebody smacking a pipe into a wall. And then the track that it plays into called black fairy is it's essentially the it's the background music from the the other world hotel which comes into effect after the the big revelation in the game where you find out what happened to your wife cool with that said let's listen to betrayal and black fairy by akira yamoka from silent hill 2 
right, so we're dipping into another jazzy track performed with some live instruments, going back to uh, almost a little bit of that first track there. But this is called Gravity Crow. I've also seen it listed as Gravity Raven from Gravity Days or Gravity Rush, depending on what region you're in. It's composed by Kohei Tanaka. And uh, I, I really like Gravity Rush. I played it through on my Vita, played a little bit of it on my PS4, but I don't know, I, I never really got as into it the second time around. It's one of those where I feel like I've played it, I've experienced it, dying to go on to the sequel, but uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, probably not going to play the first one again, just because the sequel looks, I guess, that much stronger. This is the theme, I believe. Uh, I'm more familiar with this song from the soundtrack than from the game itself, but I believe this is the theme of the, um, I want to say the antagonist, although I I think it's one of those kind of like more, more of a rival type of situation of uh, another character with a similar power set, but this one is instead of being cat themed is Raven themed. And I really like this track because it's big, showy, bombastic, and it uh, definitely kind of loses itself a little bit uh, further into the track. It has this awesome, like, squealing trumpet solo. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's a powerful track. And it's uh, really kind of jazzy, swingy, and fun as well. So it, it's, a, it's a good one. Uh, Johnny, have you ever played Gravity Rush before? No, unfortunately, it's another hole in my gaming yeah. history. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I've, I, I do have a PS4. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've not had the uh, the handheld PlayStation consoles, uh, so I, I assume these are, or at least, uh, is Gravity Rush the sequel, the more well known one? Well, Gravity Rush is the Western name for Gravity Days, which is the uh, okay. first game on the PS Vita, and then Gravity Rush Two, or Gravity Days Two, uh, just came out this last February, I believe. Okay. And uh, already they're talking about shutting down its online services, which is unfortunate because it hasn't even gone on sale yet. I mean, it's gone on sale, but not like the deep sale that I've been waiting for. You know, usually by now yeah. you'd be able to expect it, but uh, I guess it probably didn't do that well. Amazon doesn't even have any copies of the game left to sell in my region anyways. And uh, yeah, it's just a bit unfortunate that it never really caught on because it looks like a really strong sequel to an already pretty strong game. This is Gravity Crow by Kohei Tanaka.
We have one track left, but before we get to that, we want to remind everyone that you can venture over to our forum at canonrinse.com forum, where you can request your own tracks, not your own tracks necessarily, although you can if you're a composer, but you can request your own favorites from uh, any games that you have played previously in the past. Uh, or games you've not even played. You know, sometimes I come to a game soundtrack before I play the game itself. Uh, we'd also encourage you to check out our main Canon Rinse podcast, if you haven't already, where we talk more in depth about games. That is one game every week where we uh, give it a thorough two-hour talking about. I'd, of course, like to thank John for joining me today, and would like to open up the floor. Do you have anything that you would like to draw our listeners' attention to? If you've enjoyed listening to my kind of rambling nonsense um i have been on a handful of Kane and Ritz in the past mm. and they've been yeah they've been they've been good shows they've been some good games i think we did the doom shows i was a part of mm. we did conquer's bad fur day i think you were on that one yeah, as well, yeah. right? <laughs> and more recently uh we talked about gone home i won't say what because it's uh, i'll leave it as a, a little tease for the listeners um i am penciled in for a cana rinse episode before the end of this year but you, it's not what you might think so yeah you might might hear some more of me over the course of the next couple of months all right well tune into the main podcast for that we are going out from this podcast with a uh, a real traditional closer. You know, it, it's impossible to not put this one at the end because it is the quintessential end credit song from video games. And I know that, you know, we've had the Super Mario World end credit song requested a couple times and there have been some real stunners throughout uh, video games past, but really... I'd I'd challenge anyone to uh to come up with a better end credit song than this one. This is a request from the forum from Code Monkey, who says of this portal track, I first heard of Jonathan Colton after his album was included in a humble bundle. I had no idea he had any involvement in Portal until I completed Portal 2 and Googled the artist. I then went back and played Portal 1 from the orange box. I have chosen the original end credit song Still Alive from Portal 1. I really enjoyed the end credit sung by Gladys. It was such an unusual but fun song, sung by an AI and so different from the AI that was trying to kill you throughout the game. The cake is a lie, so says Code Monkey. <laughs> you, you say that with the the air of a man who has not played the original Portal. I say that with the air of a man who got very, very tired of cake jokes. Okay, yeah, uh, I think that's, that's the alternative <laughs> twist on that. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, it basically just turned into a meme, didn't it? And I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we heard a lot of it. And it's it's amazing, actually, thinking about Portal today after seeing this on the schedule. This game is practically 10 years old oh wow yeah i mean it's that's shocking because i i've got very very strong memories of waiting for the orange box Mm. to come out and going to my local game store and bugging them and trying to get a copy of it a couple of days early and them not budging and i'd I'd played half-life 2 at the time and you know i i I guess that was two or three years beforehand that i'd played it i was very very keen to play it again uh i remember picking up the orange box and going home and yeah, I I never I think Portal was completely new with the collection. Right. And it it was this sort of sleeper thing that they'd stuck on the disc that nobody seemed to know very much about and then kind of absolutely took the world by storm. Yeah. And to to think that that's just about 10 years ago at this point is incredible to me. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Portal is in my estimation, in my opinion anyways, it's hard to think of a better video game like there are other games that I like more, but I mean, 
you know, there are like two or three games that I like more, but Portal is such like a good encapsulation of like, it just accomplishes so well everything that it sets out to do. It's really successful in what it attempts. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes down to the inventiveness of the gameplay, the the consistency of the characters and setting, and a lot of the humor that went into that. And of course, mm. this song that uh, plays at the end of Portal is a great encapsulation of that, written by comedy uh, songwriter Jonathan Colton, uh, sung by Ellen McLean, who not only voiced Gladys, but also has a history in singing herself. Such a perfect cap to what is just a genuinely excellent and uh, revelatory game. And so, you know, really, I could talk about this song for hours and hours and hours, I'm sure, but it really speaks for itself. You know, it. I, th- I think everybody coming into this will have heard the song before mm-hmm. and will have some sort of a reaction to it. But uh, yeah, we, we just encourage our audiences, no matter how familiar you are with the song, come to it with fresh ears and just listen to it again and try to put yourself back in the headspace of hearing it for the first time. And uh, oh, just what a, what a perfect send off to the song and hopefully what a great end to this podcast. So we'll leave you with the soothing voice of Ellen McLean and the comical lyrics of Jonathan Colton singing still alive from portal back from 2007. I can't even believe it. I was still in high school at the time. Ugh. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. Then the science gets done and you make a neat gun for the people who are still alive. Black Mesa That was a joke 